Comrade, you are listening to WHIV LP New Orleans 102.3. This show is Good Morning Comrade, but take you to a quick interview with Chris Deere. Uh, Chris is from where I'm from, Chalmette, uh, St. Bernard Parish, and he is also the author of the book, The 1868 St. Bernard, Mas- Bernard Parish Massacre, Blood in the Cane Fields. Uh, just before we do that, you can uh, just wanted to let you know, uh, you can get more information about Good Morning Comrade at goodmorningcomrade.com. And you can listen to us anytime uh, on WHIV-FM. Hey, I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me. So um, Scott actually reached out to you to talk about some uh, specifically St. Bernard history. Uh, and like we, one of the times that we met for the first, uh, I think it was like a first or second time we ever met face to face, uh, was at an event for a book that you wrote about the, uh, St. Bernard massacre, which happened down the road. Um, I guess we could start there and maybe just talk, talk about, um, what happened down there, uh, and maybe even talk a little bit about your book. Sure. Well, uh, you know, as both of y'all know, y'all are from St. Bernard Parish. There was a massacre that happened there in 1868. It was during uh, an election time, happened what we call down a road. So yep. lower St. Bernard Parish, if you go down river and, and St. Bernard Parish. Across the Violet Canal. Across <laughs> the Violet Canal, yeah, yeah. And and even some uh, before the, you reach the Violet Canal, it was, uh, it was kind of a, a, a wide. Regional, yeah. <laughs> it was it was an event that, that uh, was over a vast amount of land, but it was during the election of 1868, two different candidates, Grant on uh, one ticket and Horatio Seymour mm-hmm. on the other ticket. So it was a very contentious uh, election. And essentially it was mm-hmm. about voter suppression and trying to keep the black vote uh, from occurring because they were changing the political uh, landscape after the Civil War. And it turned into uh, a massacre and it was it was one of many. Mm-hmm. So it's an incredibly complicated yeah. topic. I appreciate you coming to the to the book talk too. Yeah, it, it was specifically uh, a reaction to Reconstruction. So uh, Grant, as you were saying, uh, was running for president. He kind of like stepped in after. Um, well, he was a general, I suppose, um, from the from the Civil War uh, towards the end, and it, he. Um, was was he was running for president? I'm not sure if it was for his election or initial or re-election, but he was essentially the the, the face of Reconstruction, and it, 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 he was the Reconstruction candidate, I suppose you could say, right? Uh, right. Yeah, he was on the uh, Republican ticket, and those uh-huh. were at the time the Republican Party was uh, trying to keep Reconstruction afloat, mm-hmm. and Horatio Seymour was on the Democratic ticket, which at the time was trying to end the federal occupation of the South, mm-hmm. which would return the South to Home Rule. And uh, most historians refer to home rule as a euphemism for, for white supremacy. Right. So, Same stuff as like and, states' rights and things like that. 
Exactly, exactly. The South didn't want uh, to be occupied by federal government after the Civil War. Horatio Seymour promised to to end that occupation. So that's mm -hmm. why Southern whites really were were pulling for him during that election. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine it's pretty contentious. Like uh, Reconstruction was not popular at all, and it was very mishandled. Like all that stuff. It wasn't popular so, like, amongst a certain demographic or a certain set uh, of the of the sort of like you know ruling class to middle middle upper ruling class. Is that, would that be correct? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the, the plantation owners, the you know southern elites, they yeah. they disdained Reconstruction. They they really looked at it as an occupation, and they're the ones that tried to uh, you know intensify the situation <laughs> to stop the black vote because. It was after a lot of these reconstruction amendments and they they knew that if black americans were allowed to vote they would lose so much of their power more than what they lost during the civil war and we still see those themes of voter suppression today just looking at images of kentucky and and whatnot so yeah yeah all them people like banging on the doors to like vote and stuff <laughs> right yeah it's a legacy that's been going on since black suffrage happened during reconstruction yeah. so it's yeah woven into our history i mean they, they have to keep batting this thing down like they had to do it in jim crow and like they're trying to do it again now because like they always keep trying to bring these 150 year old policies back yeah yeah and we saw that you know during reconstruction when a large percentage of the black male population could vote you did get black pop pop uh, politicians in in power mm -hmm. and uh louisiana we had Oscar Dunn, we had uh, PBS Pinchback, the first black governor in United States history. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be another one until the 1980s. <laughs> so, yeah, it's it, we, we see things change when we give people actually actual democracy. Yeah. And, and there was um, so I guess if you are looking at it from the perspective of these, you know, definitely like racist, but for, 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 for sure, for sure, like very interested in kind of keeping white and black workers separated, you kind of feel like the world's flipping upside down, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, that was their goal. They definitely wanted uh -huh. to uh, play different, you know, groups against mm -hmm. one another. That, that's really what terrified the elites of the 19th century and, mm -hmm. and of the 21st century. They, they did not want that kind of uh, yeah. solidarity. Yeah. Even today, like, like, um, and, and so I guess that can maybe something that we can sort of, you know, thread the needle into today um, to some of the, you know, protests that we're seeing uh, in the streets in the response to the, you know, murder of, m I mean, multiple people by police, um, including George Floyd and, and Jefferson Parish that have uh, Modesto Reyes, who, had, who died uh, recently because of police uh, shot him. And uh, it's funny, I went to a, um, a, a protest probably about two or three weeks ago. And it was in Jefferson Parish, starting at um, at uh, Frank Lemon play Playground, uh, not Don Lemon. That's the CNN guy. Uh, but uh, that was really great because there was such a, especially in places such as Jefferson Parish, which has this sort of history of being a white flight suburb, and um, it was also really cool to see that there was a, um, a synergy and a solidarity amongst you know white and white and black folks kind of marching together and and and. and you know, you know, fighting for the sort of rollback of, of police uh, and the sort of defund police, which is kind of the main, the main kind of cry. 
Yeah, we saw something similar in Chalmette with the Black Lives Matter rally and protests there that seemed to show a lot of solidarity between groups and uh, a a story there that's kind of a rallying cry for people in Chalmette concerns Namali Henry, who was arrested at age 19 and um, was left and on bogus charges and was left to die in a jail cell without any medication whatsoever. Now it's, it's currently being investigated by the Justice Department. But these, there's so many stories like that and so many different things. So uh, fascinating. Mm-hmm. And, and we are seeing a lot of different um, groups coming together in, mm-hmm. in the 21st century. I mean, St. Bernard itself has like a big history of that. We were a big part of the, uh, of the fiefdom back in the day. Oh, of, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. And even in St. Bernard Parish's history, you've, you saw different... Uh, groups coming together as well black and white protests uh protesting together for better rights so yeah uh let's bring robert into the conversation robert's just joining us in progress uh what's up robert yeah we're talking about um we're talking about some uh history of the area uh saint bernard specifically and uh just some of the you know moments of, of racial solidarity we talked a little bit about the uh the, the saint bernard massacre of what year was it 1668 <laughs> Back to the, the the protest. That was at Torres Park, and uh, it was organized by some by some students, if I'm, if if I'm memory serves correctly. And my buddy Mike also said that there were parts of the the railroad union that were a part of you know supporting the kids and bringing this and, and kind of making this whole thing happen. What what uh, went into organizing this whole thing, as far as you know? So, interestingly enough, uh, some people did think that I was behind it and organizing it, but I was I was really hands off. It was a lot of former students that uh, some of them that I taught that that organized this. And I think they're just, you know, a different generation that that's not going to put up with so many things that uh, past generations seem to, to be OK with. So uh, as far as I know, they organized it. They planned it. Um, I spoke because they asked me to speak and yeah. whatnot. But it was really student led. A lot of these kids, well, I call, they're, they're adults now, but they're former students. So I still think of them sometimes as students, but they're in their early twenties, 21, 22, and they want to see change in their community. They're, they're from St. Bernard Parish and uh, they hear stories all the time. There's still a lot of racism in St. Bernard Parish as in many places Mm -hmm. and they're, they're ready for that change. They, they're, they're aware for sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, nowadays it's not like when we were in high school, like we, we I only had to watch the news when I was punished and stuff like now people are like actually like really like behind all this stuff you know like I, I didn't have any like political organizing groups when I was in high school it was just like student least, government yeah. and stuff same I the only news that I listened to or knew in high school was Fox News I, I yeah. it's all I knew was Sean Hannity um, Bill O'Reilly those were the guys that I remember hearing about it or from in high school there was no um alternative sources back back then we didn't have the internet i mean we had it but nothing like we have 
today, you know? Yeah, like my dad, before Fox News came out, he would just smoke cigarettes on the ground on the floor of our living room and watch C-SPAN all day. <laughs> or listen to Rush Limbaugh. He would do yeah, that. or listen to Rush when we had to like go to the city. I mean, when you're a kid, you just watch the news that your dad watches or your mom watches or like whatever yeah. people like you don't know. Yeah, you really don't. It's just you got to, you know, educate yourself as much as possible to, to deprogram and decondition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so uh, let's talk about some history. I yeah. learned recently that Chalmette is one of the first places to have a uh, Asian American uh, uh, community. Really? Yeah, yeah. St. Bernard Parish had the first Filipino community oh, in yeah, the United yeah. States, which yeah. is remarkable to me. It was uh, founded in the late 1700s. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a couple of, uh, a lot of Filipinos, they, they jumped off these Spanish ships. They found their way to the bayous of St. Bernard Parish. They established a self-sufficient community that lasted all the way until 1915. And it was named after yeah, St. Malo, who was a runaway slave who was, you know, um, was also a hero in, in the lights of, of, in the eyes of many people. So definitely a fascinating history there. I actually went just this weekend to the bayous where St. Malo, the community was, and, and there's still uh, like, it's still there. Like it didn't, the ground isn't completely washed away like so many other places it's not completely underwater so it was a fascinating trip yeah I, one day i'm gonna have to go down to that islenios uh um uh, uh what is the museum? museum yeah yeah there's an islenios museum down there as well that's uh that's commemorating the canary islanders that came also mm -hmm. in the late 1700s so st Bernard parish was always a diverse place you know it was always really diverse yeah, I actually have a funny story about the Los Angeles. How do you say it again? Islenos. Islenos uh, historical center site, whatever. So when I first moved down here, I was like working for AmeriCorps and we all, um, they like took us out there. Oh, my dog's going crazy, of course. Um, but uh, they took us out there for whatever, like, hey, here's Louisiana, learn things. And the guy was, the guy who like gave us the tool was like such a, like a good old boy kind of dude. But he was like one of the first. Um, he kind of looked like um, he kind of looked like uh, what's his face when he was um, when he played Huey P. Long. Oh, John, uh, John, uh, John, Goodman. John Goodman. Yeah, he wore like the white suit and everything. Oh, no. But he was just like, yeah, he was showing us all around. He was a good guy, you know, and he was showing us around. He was like, yeah, he'd be like, well, um, not much happened here in the early days. This is where this is the tent where. 25 people died of typhoid and then have to, they had to eat each other because they could no longer hunt for food. Okay, and moving on, uh, there's four different kind of birds that live in this tree. And we're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Like, what? Like, there was all kinds of this, like, crazy, like... Breakneck changes of pace, it sounds like. Yeah, it was like these crazy historical tidbits that he would just kind of just like, yes, and then... Uh, you know, there were the huge alligators that uh, like to feed on people. And, um, well, anyway, we're having baked beads for lunch. And I'm just like, uh, this sounded like terrible. Like, the, like being the first people to settle anywhere sounds like the worst thing possible. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. I used to live. Exactly who you're talking about. Like, I know the guy. You know who I'm talking about? <laughs> exactly who you're talking about. And he is a character. I mean, he, it's, he's, 
he's a great guy, so knowledgeable, but it's like he's he's from a different era. Uh, yeah. Like you travel back in time when you listen to him talk. <laughs> it's really interesting, like the stories people have, because like there are still people around from like Phase Anvil and stuff. Like, like describe they're what, around. Describe, Scott, real quick, describe what Phase Anvil is. Most people not, might not know what that is. Oh, Faith Anvil was an unincorporated black community in Chalmette, and uh, it was destroyed in the 60s by President Kennedy because he wanted to build a memorial park there. And my friend Yancey's dad grew up there. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that memorial park became the Chalmette Battlefield. Is which, which yeah, Chalmette Battlefield. It's very wild because... Uh, he used to, his dad told me about like they had a barber shop, they had a church, and they had all the stuff you need from town. They because, had a downtown, like, it sounds like. Yeah, they had, they had a whole strip, like a whole like main street and all. But like, and those people had to move to the ninth ward, the lower nine. Yeah, or Violet. Yeah, it was uh, it was founded in right after the Civil War. It was a Freedman's Village, uh, Pierre Faison. Uh, gave a lot of lots to different, uh, you know, recently freed uh, people. And yeah, they, it was self-sustaining. They had uh, agriculture, they had schools, bar rooms, a church. It was, it was a remarkable community. It lasted almost a hundred years mm-hmm. until, like you said, the 1960s, they, they wanted to combine the Chalmette National Cemetery with the Chalmette Battlefield. So they uh, destroyed it after, to try to, to try to make room for the 150th anniversary. So super uh, tragic theory but uh interest an interesting point is that battleground baptist church actually still exists in the ninth ward on flood street uh, all the way back to 1868 so wow it's, it's yeah. yeah it is fantastic i mean like you said that other like that other place from down the road that lasts until 1915 and that's like that's had to be hundreds of years yeah yeah but uh like it only ended because of uh they blew up the levee, which they didn't even need to do. No, no, no. That ended uh, due to a hurricane in 1915. The levee was blown up in 1927. Uh, well, I got my I got my facts incorrectly. <laughs> That's all right. Sorry, Jeopardy. So this is uh. So you're talking about Sam Mallow. That is. Was, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, okay, we're jumping around a bit, but uh, okay. So Sam Mallow was destroyed, and night or it was sort of like destroyed by a hurricane essentially in 1917. You said. 1915. 1915. They, they didn't call them hurricanes uh, back then, but yeah, 1915 it got wiped out. Um, but the, yeah, in 1927 they they blew up the levees to save New Orleans, which they didn't really have to do, and that also flooded a lot of lower Saint Bernard Parish as well. So, I mean, you think about like how that was so old crank being like oh man they definitely blew up the levees again I, I knew somebody who lived near it and they heard it explode yep that's my my grandparents say that they say that uh they blew up the levees in betsy and katrina mm-hmm. and i used to think they really were just crazy crockpots and whatnot and then when i learned about them really blowing up the levees in 1927 i said well that they're really just using their experience yeah. from oral history to inform what's going on today so they heard those stories that happened in that flood uh-huh. Yeah, it's wild that that was like a contentious thing for a while because they have like pictures of them blowing it up too. Yep. You talking about in you talking about in Hurricane Katrina? Or are you talking about in? No, no. I was going to say. 
the unnamed original hurricane. Where are we going? Where are we, where are we taking this uh, for a ride? Uh, yeah, and you know it's funny when you think about it like that too. Like like that's the big boondoggle or whatever decision that's being made, as opposed to like Mister Go or something like that, which came later. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Actually, let's talk a little bit about Mr. Go. Um, so the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet is sort of like a, a channel that would go from essentially the lakes to the industrial, I mean, basically to the river. And, I mean, help, you know, catch me if I'm, if I'm screwing this up. Uh, but I essentially, think, I think it was, it was uh, put together by the oil companies because they wanted to get the crude shipping. back or it was something for shipping. like that. Yeah, yeah, that's just for shipping. But it's like right at the top of our town, like uh-huh. right between us and Mishu. And basically, like, all the student government, uh, like, I mean, all the, like, local government uh, meetings we got drugged to as kids, like, uh, they were always talking about shutting that down. This old guy called Junior... I remember uh, that they had they used to have the bumper stickers that it said "Lock Mister Go" and they had like a lock on them. <laughs> remember uh, that? I guess man. you want to talk about Mister Go a little bit and and sort of like what the sort of politics surrounding it was and still I mean it's still there. It's locked up as uh, guys officially, but like it's definitely still there. I was uh, I visited it this weekend. It's mm-hmm. absolutely massive. It's mm-hmm. you know in some parts wider than the Mississippi River, but yeah, it was supposed to be an outlet from the Mississippi to the Gulf of Mexico to get oil shipments, you know, as fast as possible, not having to yeah. go down the winding Mississippi. But what it did was introduce a lot of uh, fresh water to um, salt water. And it had that kind of intrusion that, and then it kept getting bigger and yeah. bigger and bigger. And obviously when Hurricane Katrina came, a lot of that water had to go somewhere and it ended up in St. Bernard Parish. And I remember as a kid going over the Green Bridge, which isn't green anymore. Yeah, my used dad, to be green. Yeah, my dad pointed to the uh, Mississippi River Golf Outlet and he said, if they don't close that, that's going to be in our backyard. I tell you what. And <laughs> I, I, thought yeah. he was, I thought he was just speaking whatever as a kid. And then when Katrina happened. He was like, I told you. And yeah, it was in everybody's backyard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, living room, too. Can't lock that up. Nope, nope. But yeah, it's locked, but it's still massive. It's, yeah. it's like a river. Um, I mean, and, and you alluded to the fact, too, like the intrusion of salt water into the, into, uh, I'm sorry, the fresh water into the estuary system. It just completely destroyed entire ecosystems. And then you, yeah. and then also there was the uh, like coastal erosion, which happens when you start like killing this marsh with fresh water, which is used to having either you know, like a, like a brackish water. Uh, and and sort of like that dies, so the the land that it's holding together also starts falling apart because the root structure of these entire ecosystems of, of marshes just die and die and die and die and die. It's amazing. Exactly. Yeah. That was our uh, hurricane protection were the wetlands and the marshes, and then when you start messing with that, you make us more vulnerable to hurricanes. Uh-huh. So yeah, now they got bull sharks in Lake Pontchartrain. Well, that was from when they let when they they um, let the let the open up the gates, open up the um, open up the spillways, right? Oh yeah, really? Yeah, it's like, like an emergency thing, though. I really don't. I really don't know anything. Like, because bull sharks are everywhere. I know this is kind of uh, non sequitur, but like bull sharks are even as far up as like the Ohio River, mm-hmm. like in like in like Illinois, like um, Iowa and stuff like that. I don't know if any anything that goes to the Gulf, I don't think would have, like they're crazy. Mm-hmm. Like they just they just they they love brackish water. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of a I'm kind of a 
things like- I things I like to read about history, how vicious it was and still sharks. is, and then also monsters. Like I could tell you about tigers, I could tell you about <laughs> sharks, anything Dragons. that goes bump in the night. Just all the cool ones you like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's out of my expertise. So yeah. uh, I don't know much about those exotic animals. Yeah. So after you you ever think about writing another book, Chris? I have, yeah. I think about it all the time. I have a bunch of outlines drawn up and stuff. I really just am so busy, but I do need to sit down and, and just crank it out and, and you know get it going. But uh, yeah, I think about different things like Civil War history that isn't really taught mm-hmm. about what different groups did during that time and resistance to the Confederacy. Mm-hmm. That uh, just we, things were not taught in school that I think that if more white people knew, they would have much different politics because the way history is taught, obviously, uh, it gives people perspectives that um, make them think certain things that just aren't true. Right. Yeah, you had a pretty, you had a pretty, you had a pretty interesting post about all the union uh, affiliated groups that are in the South during the during the Civil War. Yeah, it was it was pretty heavy. I think you know a lot of when we think about the Civil War, the idea of the South. The being a monolith is, is taught like all white people were just like, yeah, let's go Confederacy. But in reality, there was a lot of resistance groups that were against the Confederacy. They might have never been abolitionists, but they were against what they felt was like a tyrannical government. And they didn't want to fight that rich man's war. And it was especially popular here in Louisiana. You had people that were actively waging guerrilla warfare against confederacy and working with the local enslaved population and free people of color and abolitionist movements so yep. one fascinating story is when union boats were coming up the mississippi river there was a mutiny at fort jackson along the mississippi and Plaquemines, mm-hmm. and a bunch of poor white confederates were they they were tired of it and they overthrew their officers and you know let the union boats go through and i and there's there's a book on it but I just think it's stories like that that we're not really introduced to as much and that that harms the way people think about what happened back then. Yeah, I think there's a pretty like stark moment when I was a kid. I think I was in sixth grade doing a, a book report and they're like, we'll do a book report on like whatever. So I was like, uh, Civil War, Battle of Bull Run or whatever. And it was like, that's like my first like real researching for that was like my first real like run in with like revisionism because they were like, I think I like got in the wrong side and it was like, well, actually, uh, modern historians like to call it the war for Southern independence or something like that. <laughs> like, get the hell out of here. Like, like, even then I was like, get out of here with this shit, well, that's, man. Like, I mean, that goes, I mean, uh, but that's just the, 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 the lost cause uh, sort of narrative that was pushed out uh, after the, after the, um, you know, loss of the Confederacy and, and that, that fueled a lot of the things um, that that you were you wrote about in your previous book and, and and the sort of like backlash to Reconstruction, right? You want to talk a little bit about the um the, the, the sort of like lost cause, and sort of like what what that's done to sort of impact the way the that, that people, especially um, I guess in mainstream like classrooms, even uh, look at history. Yeah, interestingly enough, uh, on a, on a personal note. I'm the son of a history teacher. So I, I was taught a little more accurate history that the war was about slavery and whatnot. And I remember going to school 
and kids saying it had nothing to do with slavery. And I was so confused. I was like, well, that's not, you know, what I heard growing up. Possible. Yeah. But essentially, once the South lost the military conflict, it turned into an ideological battle and they wanted to rewrite history. They wanted to, you know, incorporate different textbooks and curricula into the classrooms that pushed this narrative that it was a noble, just fight against a tyrannical government that was oppressing their their rights and it had nothing to do with, with slavery. But if you read all of the um, constitutions of the Confederacy or the states and and what the politicians were saying, they were unapologetic about the cause. They they were pretty much like, this is about slavery and don't let anybody in the future tell you otherwise. So <laughs> I, those, those words are there, you know. So the lost cause, yeah, it's an ideological battle, and uh, it's and it was incredibly successful. If you look at all the monuments, a lot of them weren't built right after the Civil War. They were built in the late 1800s, and some of them in, in the Civil Rights Movement. They were making a clear case of, of solidifying white supremacy mm-hmm. uh, by glorifying the, the Confederacy. So one of those things that we're still unraveling today you know a hundred and something years later we're still fighting this ideological battle about what the civil war was actually fought for mm-hmm. now um how how it's always kind of yeah like i've read the articles of the confederacy and like what jefferson davis actually said like about slavery and how yeah 100 percent about slaves but i could be completely wrong here so it's like that's why i'm at this like a uh, an honest question um, mm-hmm. I've read that some historians say there was an economic component uh, to the South um, starting the Civil War because uh, slavery was becoming unpopular around the world and a lot of countries couldn't would not trade with southern states. So they thought maybe if we just like secede, it'll force these these other countries like the great like uh, like UK, Great Britain to trade with them. Is that is there any truth to that, or is that more like kind of like trying to play I both think, sides bullshit? No, I think that's and I think it's intertwined because the Southern economy was based on slavery, and when Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party got into power, obviously a very different Republican Party than today, but when they got into power, they wanted to stop the spread of slavery. That was actually what the Republican Party was founded in part was to stop the spread of slavery, and then as you admit, new states into the United States, those states are going to be anti-slave states, and thus they're going to start outnumbering the slave states of the South, and the South would eventually lose out, mm-hmm. and uh, slavery would, would you know gradually fade away. But you're right, it was becoming unpopular in some places. It was very popular in the South, and 1860 was the height of, the, of, of slavery in the South. But yeah, they were going to it was going to gradually phase out and they they did not want that. So that was one of the reasons why they seceded. Their entire economy was mm-hmm. was based on slavery. And yeah, uh, there, go ahead, go ahead. there was actually a lot of like in the 90s and uh, a lot of revisionism was kind of like trendy again because of the Ken Burns documentary and uh, Shelby Foote, like like being like, I'm a historian, not a novelist anymore. And he's like, I know all these things. And really like kind of gave it a shot in the arm for a bunch of years, you know? Like, yeah. Ken Burns, he's pretty clear about it. He said, it's about slavery, you know? And uh, I think that made a lot of people upset because they loved his documentaries and other things. And then when it came to the civil war, they were like, wait a second, it's going against our preconceived notions of, of what it was. About. 
Well, Shelby Foote was on there, like, he saying was, the opposite. He's like, they, they didn't care nothing about that. They were just protecting their communities. And, like, it's, like, kind of a travesty that they let him on there, right? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Well, Ken, Ken Burns does like to do, like, the full picture, I suppose. And he kind of – I guess if there's a critique, it's that uh, – He's too even, and he, he kind of like over represents the sort of dissenting side or whatever. You know, he'll he'll, he'll put up Mark. I don't know. I don't mean to be too like critical of like Ken Burns or whatever, but I think that's You're sort of fine. like one of the things. You're fine with that. I've I've massive problems with uh, his Vietnam miniseries. Mm -hmm. Same. But uh, anyway. Uh, on that point, though, I, I was actually uh, I referred you to a book, and I can I can let you borrow it if you're interested, and, and I can point you in that direction too, uh, Robert. But there's a book by a guy named Matt Carp, uh, who's uh, I think it's from Harvard University Press. Uh, it's called uh, Our Vast Southern Empire, and the point of that is sort of like the uh, the sort of policies that uh, the Southern states kind of pushed forward to. Um, not just you know maintain uh slavery like especially after missouri compromise which you mentioned earlier which would make it so that there's no more slave states it's going to be north of the uh of that line um but then sort of the intentionally like jumping into the mexican the mexican-american war to bring in texas was which was which was uh kind of an independent state that had slaves and there was no way they were giving them up without a fight you know it's like one of those sort of situations well, I always thought that the Texas always kind of knew they were going to be a part of America. So they were just like, we got to get on our own because like America can't just like invade. It, it was critical though that, 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 that Texas comes in as a slave state for the, yeah. for the, um, for the sort of the Southern slave plantation, you know, folks. Um, and then the other thing also was kind of like the international component, which Robert alluded to earlier, uh, which included Brazil cuba and the u.s which were the like last three holdouts on on doing like having explicit chattel slavery well yeah, like didn't the south have like a really like the market kind of cornered on cotton and they were like we have this big bargaining chip like this is definitely going to work out in our favor mm -hmm. but then yeah, like they did, and, but no no country would recognize the south it was not a good uh political or geopolitical move to recognize the state pseudo state that's going to mm -hmm. definitely lose so they couldn't really get international legitimacy at all even even though they had uh cotton and and you saw other countries like great britain start to look at other places to to get their cotton you know uh, like in asia and whatnot so well yeah i think by then hadn't england like abdicated like slavery and just like oh, pretended like all the people that did it were like eastern traders or something like that <laughs> they like, yeah, as far as I know, Great Britain at that time, they they were their government was um, against slavery, except when they did it in Africa and whatnot. So, yeah, with special conditions. Right, right. It's one of those things when countries always say they're against something, but then they do it as well. <laughs> I feel like that's how Great Britain was during that time. That's, yeah. that's how everybody was. I mean, it was the same deal with um, France, you know, with the, the rights of man after the revolution. And Napoleon was like, yeah, everybody has human rights except for those people in Haiti because we really need sugar. Like, yeah. We really need it. Well, they got theirs. So often those European Enlightenment ideals just pertain to, you know, the white people of the, the area. You know, you know, we look at the Congo and King Leopold and 
Ugh. You know, it rained killed millions of people at the same time. People in Belgium were debating Enlightenment ideals and whatnot. Yeah, it, it comes the, the the kind of core question that that materializes in the center of it is who qualifies as a full human being. You know, mm -hmm. that's sort of like what what like. Of course, we're not going to allow you know black slaves or whatever to be the same. It's, it's sort of like that's the. It's it's almost like it's not thinkable. It's not like trodden territory in the in in folks's, I guess, in their brain. They're not recognized, at least legally speaking, as as full human beings. Right. Yeah, it's so weird, like, just like how, how that prism turns, like, because they came up with these ideas and they were kind of like, yeah, I think everybody should have this. And then when everybody's like, oh, cool, like now we get it. And they're like, oh, wait, no, uh, maybe I didn't uh, maybe I didn't express myself good enough. You know, I think I'm it's more than that, though, because you're t you're thinking of like a time. It's like, how do you keep capitalism going? before even before the industrial revolution like there's really no way to do it without putting people in human bondage like there's there's you can't you can't tell people and i'm not saying like obviously as black guy sitting here like this is like slavery was not good and cool but <laughs> you can't like you can't tell these Robert people who've made slavery. like tons of that's hot take yeah, yeah. we're gonna defend slavery um, you can't tell these people who've made tons of money from you know dealing in human capital uh without having any labor costs to all of a sudden like cut their profits mm -hmm. like like they're, they're like well i can't do that we got to have slavery it's a necessary evil i mean there's a we're facing the same things now like you know you've got ceos you've got a jeff bezos saying well i can't make less money that's that's crazy yeah, jeff bezos is actually kind of more insidious because he's like i'm a champion of these ideals and then he's like well other than the things I do constantly in practice, like, uh, like, yeah, it's reminiscent of the leaders we were talking about in during the enlightenment era. They, they espouse one thing. Jefferson was an abolitionist at heart. He would say things like he was against slavery and then he would own 300 slaves and rape them and, and whatnot. So theoretically so many people hold positions and then they do something completely different to, to benefit themselves. Yeah, they just sort of like either ignore or don't recognize those contradictions because I don't think it's I don't think it would be fair to say that like Jefferson or whoever like didn't actually believe enlightenment values or whatever. It's just that when the these contradictions came up, he simply like like yeah. like people in those eras would essentially use like like essentially limit who they recognize as full people. You know, and that's basically how they were able to make that justification in their own brain. Yeah, they they kind of put it down, but they didn't put their money where their mouth was. Like, right. oh right, we're saying the same things. Mm -hmm. Like, it's almost like it's almost a lack of imagination. Like, yeah, yeah. You, could, you could call it that. They just can't imagine any other world. So obviously, this was the way it had to be. Sure, there were people like um, Robert E. Lee who said, you know, when you've got slaves, lay it into them good. <laughs> and then put Brian on their wounds and make him hurt. He's like, you know, twirling his mustache. And then there's other people who are like, well, I, I got to make money somehow. I mean, so mm -hmm. this is how I'm doing it. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's pretty weird. Uh, I lost my train of thought. I do want to um, kind of go back, circle back to Shalmet uh, a little bit in terms of, I don't know how much you've explored this or where we can sort of like get into this, but like Shalmet is a historically working class area. Um, and, uh, I like. I'm not going to name any names, but a lot of the guys that I know who are labor leaders in the New Orleans area 
are from or have lived in Chalmette at some point. Uh, in terms of like specifically labor history, are you familiar with sort of like the history of unions and, and how they've operated specifically within Chalmette? Or is that something that you haven't really tried on yet? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I think it was just kind of like an interesting question and, and place for exploration maybe even going forward. Yeah, that's something I'm actually pretty interested in is how uh, black and white people of St. Bernard Parish historically organized together for better working rights. Mm -hmm. There's a few examples there in 1887. This was after the 1868 St. Bernard Parish massacre. They had a guy named Gabriel Casanova, who I assume is, has some relation to the Casanova seafood that's down the road. And he with a, a bunch of other different laborers, they organized this massive strike of over 500 workers, black and white, and they were ransacking places and, and fighting for better wages. And the governor had to come in with like the, the National Guard to put this strike down. Like the sheriff at the time couldn't do it and had to call in extra help. Another uh, interesting case was in 1920, exactly 100 years ago, at Domino Sugar Refinery, a few blocks away. It's still there. there were, still there, yeah. One of the biggest sugar refineries in the world. And there was a massive demonstration there, black and white workers coming together. And they were fighting for better wages. And they actually won mm -hmm. uh, a lot of those demands. Um, similar stories with the uh, slaughterhouses in Araby. They've had a history of strikes as well. So it's definitely a place of uh, solidarity and, and people coming together. It's just, again, that's an interesting history that if more people knew how common it was back then for that to happen, it wouldn't be so uh, odd to see it happening today. It'd be, yeah, that's what happened, you know, for hundreds of years. Things, mm -hmm. episodes like that were common. Yeah, um, it's funny. My, my friend uh, was a curator of an exhibit at Tulane at the Small Center a couple of years back called Sites of Resistance. Uh, shout out to Sue. Um, but she, but she uh, in that sort of uh, display, they had a lot of the sort of like inter... Uh, interracial like moments of solidarity that his that 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 had happened throughout the like Orleans area history, and she had a map showing like exactly where they were on the street. It's so so cool. It's a shame that the I mean, well, I mean, the exhibit ran its course and it closed and everything like that. But I'm like super proud of uh of of Sue for putting that on. That sounds fascinating. I would love to see some of that research or see something like that. I mean, the strikes in New Orleans were huge even compared to other other cities mm. and the labor movement in the united states was massive even compared to europe it's mm -hmm. it, it's a really incredible history. it's got such a history it's such an amazing history like in the u.s because everything just seems to be like so much more un like out of control when it comes to yeah. labor <laughs> yeah, yeah, scott i for actually forget who uh who told me this but one of my years when i did louisiana history my my teacher was like hey man you guys need to be glad you don't live in iowa we're not doing iowa history like <laughs> i was like yeah that's pretty good history yeah I'm sure people were there and then they weren't people weren't there and then they were there we share a river with iowa yeah it's the tip of the spear yeah louisiana history is is really a place of fascinating uh, events contradictions uh different worlds so it's yeah it's it's fascinating and you're right it, it is very tame now compared to what it used to be i mean 
I was just reading about the 1929 streetcar um, strikes that that gave birth to the po- famous yeah. po' boy sandwich. They were burning streetcars on the streets, and crowds were just standing there cheering it on like it was a normal day. I mean, and that's pretty. Days, that's pretty cool. Yeah, people think the the protests are out of control with some riot, rioting and and looting or whatever, and, and they get all bent out of shape. But when you look at what happened in the past, this is nothing compared to the labor mm-hmm. movement in the 20s and, and 30s and whatnot mm-hmm. yeah they had a lot of riots like they they a couple years ago they took down the liberty place riot where all the the white league tried to uh like kill a bunch of cops yeah and they did they killed a, a, a lot of people they um, took over the city they they took yeah. over they, they were in charge of the city for a, what a, well, not a week exactly but it was a couple of days New Orleans has been occupied pretty good over history like uh huey long did it once Oh, we've had an episode on on Huey Long. We've done we've done that one. That was oh, a sorry, great I mean, one. No, 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 no. I, I love talking about Huey Long, but I mean, that's uh, we had a good guy who's a who he uh, named Bruce McGee. He's up in um, La Tech, and he like maintains like a like an archive of Huey Long specific stuff. It's pretty cool online. I have to give you the URL of that. Yeah, I tried to crack that Huey Long book, and it's so big. I feel like I'm not that's ever so making happy. a dent. Like fish. <laughs> Uh-huh. Is it the kingfish? Uh, uh, no. Let me grab it real quick. Yeah. I mean, look. I mean, you want to talk a little bit about Huey Long? I mean, he didn't really have impact oh, in this specific. Oh, just area, Huey but. Long by T. Harry Williams. Williams. It is. Mm-hmm. It's extremely big. It's a thick boy. He also, yeah. He wrote a few biographies. Interesting uh, author. Mm-hmm. Well, if we could tie it back to local history. Huey Long's brother, I mean, a uh, son, Russell uh, Long, he's the one who uh, went to the Senate to get a committee together to try to uh, connect the Chalmette battlefield to the Chalmette National Cemetery, which led to uh, Faisonville being demolished. And, mm-hmm. and that's snake. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, bastard, Russell. <laughs> Uh, why, why couldn't he just got committed like Earl? <laughs> yeah, so that's an interesting tie in there. It was actually a long who initiated that process. Uh, what a jerk. Yeah, I'm, I'm like super fascinated by just like long himself and how the, how he was able to sort of like get all that energy and all of the, the like populist sort of um, support behind him. But he didn't do it through labor, though. He did it through more of a, a a much more unorganized channel, it seemed like. But but his internal operation was highly organized. Yeah, he's a fascinating figure because he really could simplify incredibly complex things to the working class. Oh, my and God. So, yeah, know, the, the, barbecue. Bar- the barbecue speech is just so, yeah. it's so, so good. Like, just the guy is unbelievable with words. I'd never seen anybody like it. Yeah, he, he he terrified people in D.C. too because he was so popular around the, the country and whatnot. But yeah, the the whole if if you see somebody coming to a barbecue and taking the whole thing, you're gonna tell them to get back here and put back some of that stuff. And, <laughs> yeah, Mr. And Rockefeller. Everyone, yeah, everyone goes nuts. Yeah, you know? a couple a couple of years ago, I was working in hotels and uh, I wound up in this bar. I must have got lost or something, but. Uh, it was just this uh, guy from Tulane. I guess he was a history professor. And he's like, 
we're kind of talking about uh i think i made a joke about the governor that restaurant the governor or whatever i was like oh yeah who gives a shit about huey long and he's like oh man you don't even understand and uh he's like oh man you don't know about all uh the sunshine bridge and all and like how he he kind of came up with all these new deal policies like kind of by himself and Oh. It's almost like they kind of cribbed his sheep on that. <laughs> no, no, so like FDR thought he was the most dangerous man in America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because he he was corrupt, no doubt. But I mean, kids were getting textbooks. Schools started to get funded. Bridges were being built. Um, highways were being built. I know one of there's a legend that airline highway was being built for him so we could go back and forth to New Orleans and Baton Rouge quicker. <laughs> but uh, he he made things happen and he delivered. I mean, if you were, yeah, if you were impoverished and somebody was, you know, giving you what they say, then obviously he's, you're going to be remarkably uh, popular. You know, and, and, and on that point of like you mentioned the corruption thing, but like that is a tale as old as time whenever there's somebody who is kind of against the kind of uh, the winds of how like U.S. capitalism, for lack of a better. I mean, I guess there is no better term. Um the way that that water that that, that that water starts to flow right so like i think about lula in brazil and i think about uh all of these sort of like pink tide nations that popped up you know in the uh, you know late 20th century you know 21st in the early 21st century that um what's the usual go-to line is you know for why the u.s has to do an intervention is oh they're corrupt and we have to fix it you know like that's the same kind of narrative that goes all the way back I mean, that's, even to yeah. even to ancient Rome, like the Gracchi brothers, you know. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's definitely a common theme: is if someone's doing something you don't like, they must be corrupt, even if they are corrupt. And and, and all the people who were pointing the fingers at Huey Long uh, from other states and and whatnot, and other politicians were just as corrupt as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the pot in the kettle situation, but like they're doing corruption that's got a lot more like gangsters on their side. But but like Huey that, Long yeah, that's... Huey Long took it over. Like Huey Long took over Louisiana and ran it like a machine. It was amazing. Yeah, and he, he was getting rid of the, the unrunnable state. state. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, uh, go ahead, Chris. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just saying he was he was getting rid of like the KKK and and really annoying them and mm-hmm. whatnot and uh, just, just not caring. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing about corruption, when we were talking about reconstruction, a lot of governments or a lot of people in the South kept saying that the reconstruction governments were so corrupt and they, they need to leave and whatnot. And historian Eric Fonder, who wrote a, a you know the most known book about reconstruction, he said it was interesting that they were calling those governments reconstruction. And when you look at what Chicago was doing, what New York was doing at the time, like some of the most corrupt cities in the, in the 1860s and 70s. And mm-hmm. it was just yeah, like, those things people are pointing the fingers when, I mean, corruption was so rampant everywhere. Yeah. And, and, and and you know, it's funny, too, because I, I, I get into this kind of conversation about corruption. Like, like, like I, I kind of like I, the way that I think about it is like the idea that like Teddy Roosevelt coming in and busting up like the, the you know, the boss tweet and Tammany Hall and all this other stuff. But like to an extent. Like that is sort of a national intervention that is that is kind of like knocking away and like uh, disrupting very real, even if they're, you know, very hierarchical, you know, relations that filled the needs of these society of these sort of like 
communities and not actually providing a replacement, if, if you know what I mean. So essentially that, that kind of like breaking up corruption is viewed as like necessarily a good thing, but is it? You know what I mean? And, and maybe it is, but I mean, it's, it's definitely worth more exploration and investigation than just sort of like I mean, corruption bad, break corruption. You know what I mean? I'm not going to get all mega brain and be like uh, the, the Tammany Hall was good and stuff, but, it filled, but the need, like, it filled the need in the society and it was created for a reason. It's still a machine like, yeah. and machines are like awful. But like, I mean, they like did the draft and then people burned the whole city down. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you got a take on that, Chris or Robert. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't really have a huge take on that. That's not my forte in, in U.S. history. I find it uh, super interesting, just this, the idea of kind of exploring the flip side of, the, of these kind of things that are viewed as sort of necessarily good. You know, like it's almost like a default good, you know? Right. I mean, I mean like, every politician the there, they're going to run on a platform that's getting rid of corruption and, and cleaning house and things like that. And they get in there and drain the swamp. Yeah. <laughs> and they become the swamp and and whatnot and yeah it's it's good rhetoric but rarely ever do people follow through with that but huey long did in a sense follow through with some getting rid of some of that old school uh corruption as well mm -hmm. which is interesting yeah yeah send one send one up to huey p <laughs> I mean, actually, the guy with the worst bridge <laughs> the bridge is way better now I don't know if I've been, been on it in years, but it's uh, I have to drive across it a lot. But like, it used to be the scariest bridge that there ever was with the train like rolling right next to you. But they they did a, like heavy work on the Huey P, and now it's actually it's actually not a terror. Like not like watching a horror movie to get across it anymore. Yeah, it used to shake and vibrate and stuff, and you're just holding your breath the whole time. And <laughs> plus, the walls are like so high, you're like, where am I? You feel like you're in a rat maze or something. The curves, like, yeah, and it was like smaller, like thinner thinner cars or whatever really really tight it's it's way better now yeah so chris anything you want to talk about <laughs> well uh you know, local history is my my deal um y'all hit on some pretty you know important topics regarding saint bernard parish so i'm here for it. whatever y'all want to chat about I, if i can give you my insight i will and yeah, let's, let, let's talk a little bit about the Perez network again. We alluded to it earlier, but sort of like Leander Perez was a key figure in St. Bernard and also on the North Shore. And he was basically the guy who ran he, the, he ran the machine in uh, in those areas. Can you just talk a little bit about who he was and sort of uh, what was the influence and also some of the like after the fact kind of kind of like washing our hands of him, uh, which kind of happened a little bit with Judge Perez Highway. Yeah, so he kind of ruled St. Bernard Parish and Plaquemines Parish as his fiefdom. He mm -hmm. uh, was notoriously racist. He was incredibly wealthy, and he made his money through a lot of different ways, owning land, um, oil, uh, got into the fur trading business a bit. But he was... There's there's not much good to say about the man. He he, he kind of uh, you know one interesting story about Faisanville is when the U.S. Marshals closed down that street to, to demolish that neighborhood. He went against that and he was he was upset. And people were like, "Wow, Judge Perez would be he would be upset about that." But he was upset because they were blocking the the entrance to the sewer 
sewage station as well, uh, <laughs> which is still there. So I was reading about that and I was and I was like, oh, of course, he's not coming to the rescue. No. Or not. But he would yeah. openly advocate for that. He openly advocated for Faisonville to be demolished because it was during the height of white flight. So he was telling everybody, all the you know white people in New Orleans, come to St. Bernard Parish to get away from integration and they're going to keep school segregated here, which obviously it could not once it was started to become federally enforced. Mm-hmm. But yeah, St. Bernard Parish uh, named its main highway, Judge Perez, after him. I know they changed it in 99 from to a different Perez, but everyone thinks of Leanna Perez when you think of Judge, Judge Perez. Perez. One thing he did that I didn't know until college. I was reading a biography by civil rights leader, James L. Foreman Jr. And he was protesting in New Orleans and him and a lot of other civil rights leaders were arrested and transported to Plaquemines Parish. Uh, and Perez created like a camp of, and he wanted it to be like a concentration camp whoa. in Plaquemines Parish. It's like this history that is uh, what a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? Yeah, and they also said just awful things about you know the Holocaust and saying that not enough Jews died in Dachau. And uh, uh, man, I mean, what a piece when you of think shit. of the people at the time, right? Like you think of the people at the time, and you think that yeah, people were awful back then. But he was a guy that just took it to whole new extreme there's a book about him called boss of the delta that dives into his life and all the way from the 1927 trappers war that happened in saint Bernard parish to oh yeah they had like a dvd about that a while back yeah yeah one of my students did a project on it it's really fascinating but his hands were all in that all in you know fighting against integration he he did an interview with william buckley Uh oh That's fascinating. And yeah. William Buckley is super conservative and Yaley. But he was still kind of like, you know, shocked at what Leanna Perez was saying as he was smoking his cigar. Yeah, but that uh. didn't stop him from having him on. Like, I don't know. Like, the funny thing about guys like Buckley, and like, I could definitely get into it about him, but like, he basically would find the most controversial sort of position or person to have on and just sort of like, kind of like wag his finger at them no matter how no matter who they were it was like 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 i could write a book probably on william f buckley oh man i've never heard of this person was he just like the pundit of his day yeah he was the guy that would have like the show it was called firing line and he would basically he had like muhammad ali on one time and just like like muhammad ali at the time had just uh surrendered or had been stripped of the world championship because he wouldn't go to he wouldn't go to uh, Vietnam and he would say things like you know we ain't you know we ain't got no problem with the Vietnamese and um, he would definitely use a little bit more colorful language than that but uh, he would sort of like step up and he absolutely destroyed William F. Buckley like like Muhammad Ali was an absolute like king at talking. Yeah, that was a fascinating interview. Muhammad Ali was definitely self educated and and. Yeah, he destroyed Buckley, and, and there's a lot of people that did. Noam Chomsky went on uh, Buckley, James. and they mm-hmm. argued about the Vietnam War, and Chomsky destroyed him as well. Uh-huh. But yeah, Buckley did have Perez on there. Uh, there's an interesting documentary about Buckley and Gar Vidal, the, their debates that they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that sounds that's weird. 
Well, they, they both like kind of made one another like it's, a, it's like a foil for one another, right? So they kind of got a bunch of attention for being like notorious rivals. You know, it was kind of like the feud of the day. Did you like curse them out in Esperanto or something? <laughs> I don't know about all that, but he, he the way that he talked and his mannerisms, he was definitely you know going for this conservative intellectual vibe. Yeah. With the, with, the, with the uh with the like the the east the new england kind of like accent too you know yeah i'm not even gonna try it but it's it definitely like if you just listen to the words it's not you know remarkable but the way he's like whoa like yeah he just sounds so aristocratic <laughs> right yeah and he leans back in his chair and stuff as if he's just it's a it's a fascinating uh figure he did interview a lot of interesting people. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. He doesn't listen to the show. He's dead. Yeah. But, uh, man, I'm going to have to look that person up. I don't even know who the hell William F. Buckley is. I need to see him get owned by all my favorite people from history. <laughs> he was- yeah, he, like, he like, threatened to beat up Noam Chomsky. Like, he, he was so frustrated. Yeah. <laughs> all right. In the middle of the interview. So uh, we're coming up on time for this episode, but uh, would you like to just mention uh, where we can find more information about your book uh, and maybe some more things about what you're, what you're working on going forward? Sure. So I have a website, chrisdeer.com, last name D-I-E-R. And I, you know, write some blogs, put some things out there. I just recently posted one on Juneteenth about uh, St. Malo, the yeah. Marine who uh, was, um, who, you know, sparked all of these different movements in, in Louisiana, eventually was lynched in Jackson Square in 1784 and whatnot. So I do try to to get history out there. I'm on Twitter at Chris Deer. Um, you can find my book on Amazon, Walmart. If you wanted, you can reach out to me personally, and I'll be happy to sign it and deliver it. If you're local, I'm more than happy to do that. So uh, really what I'm working on now is trying to represent Louisiana as the, you know, Louisiana teacher of the year. So Mm -hmm. that's a lot of speaking engagements and and different things like that. But hopefully once that subsides, then I can get back to really writing a lot of my free time and and putting out uh, different Mm -hmm. material and whatnot. Yeah. And like, you're welcome to come back on the show anytime you'd like. Uh, You know, it's great to have you on here, Chris. It's good to uh, good to know you and good to call you a friend. All right. It's great to call you a friend as well. And I, and I love y'all's work and, and whatnot. So always happy to be here. Appreciate it, brother. Uh, Thanks. You can listen to Good Morning Comrade every Tuesday uh, on WTV FM. Uh, we also have shows on Thursday. You can check us out uh, at goodmorningcomrade.com. Uh, is there anything else you want to say on the way out, gang? Love you. Bye. Nope. Bye. 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 Bye.